So we are in our second week in the book of in the letter to the Ephesians. In this series, we're looking at how the redemption we've received in Christ fuels our participation in God's mission for the world. Last week, we had a chance to look at Paul's opening words of praise. So if you look at chapter 1, it's broken up in two ways. There's praise, and now he moves to prayer. So praise and prayer. So last week, Paul opens his words with praise to God for certain blessings. We talked about these last week. The three blessings are election in the past, adoption in the present, and unification in the future. But today, what we'll see, we'll see Paul transition to praise, praising God from praising God to praying for the Ephesian Christians. And so he starts with thankfulness for their faith and love. So why don't you turn your Bibles? We'll be in Ephesians 1. We'll start in verse 15 and go through 23 today. And so we'll put the passage here up on the screen. Ephesians 1, 15 through 16 says this. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then what he does in 17 to 23, he then switches to asking God for certain things, certain requests. Look at here. That the God of our our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the wisdom, spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So let's stop there. First, here's the first request Paul gives, and he asks of God, that God will give them the Holy Spirit for illumination. And we'll come back to that. What is illumination? It's a doctrine of the church illumination. So that's the first thing he asked for. The second thing he really asked God for is that they would know God's great grace in three different ways. The hope of their calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, if your house is anything like mine, one of the most common questions I get asked on the daily is, where's the cord? Anybody else have that? Where's the cord? Where's the iPhone cord? Where's the cord for the iPad? Dad, do you know where my Nintendo Switch cord is? So I'm often, though, in this situation where I'm constantly giving the wrong cord for the wrong device, right? So, like, I don't know why, like, Apple, in their infinite wisdom, decided that iPhones would have lightning cords, but the new iPad Pros would have USB-C cords. So, constantly, I'm like, oh, here's the iPhone cord, and I hand them the iPad cord, and like, no, this is the iPad cord, Dad. I need the iPhone cord. So, I don't know why Apple did that. I'll never know. Uh, That's what happens, I guess, after Steve Jobs has left us. But in order to charge your device, you need the right power cord. Correct? You can't just plug in any cord. Android users, you probably get frustrated with this a lot when you ask for a phone charger and all the iPhone people, because we are part of the elect, give you a lightning cord and you say, no, I'm an Android user, right? So as we consider the five-year vision, which I talked about a couple weeks ago, we want to follow Christ into battle for the hearts and minds for those in our region. And one way we said we would do that 
would be through gospel advancement in our region, but also in our lives. And if you're going to advance the gospel, we're going to face pressure, like Melissa was sharing about. You're going to face pressure. So we, need, we don't just need any power. We need the right kind of power, power that comes from God in Christ. And so since last week we spent a lot of time talking about our calling, which is election, and our inheritance, which Paul talks about here again, is the unified cosmos in Christ, what we're going to focus on this week is power, which he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The power we have from God in Christ gives us boldness to advance the gospel. If you are a follower of Jesus if, and part of the church, part, the church has certain power already. So when we talk about advancing the gospel, we can do it with boldness. But we do need to be honest with ourselves. There is power of cultural and religious pressures in our world. And these will stand in contrast with the power that we have from God in Christ. And the power we have, though, Paul says, must be revealed to us. And it must come from Jesus. Okay? So there's powers from the culture and from the power, religious and cultural pressures. But we have power too, but it has to be revealed to us, Paul says, and it has to come from Jesus. So let's look at this first. Let's talk about the power of cultural religious pressures in our world. So again, Paul says in verse 19, and what is the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? The power we have is greater than cultural and religious pressures and their power. So when we think back maybe a couple weeks ago to my sermon about the five-year vision, I mentioned the pressure that our brothers and sisters in the United Kingdom are facing to conform to their culture's view of sexuality. But I do want to remind us that pressure is not new for Christians. It wasn't like all of a sudden we turned into the 21st century. We're like, oh my gosh, now everybody's out to get us and they don't like us. And then when we talk about certain things, they're starting to put some pressure on us. No, this has always been part of the Christian experience, of the church's experience. So think back, if you have a church background, to the book of Acts. From the very first pages of Acts, Christians are experiencing pressure to conform. And so the Ephesian Christians, they felt it too. They're feeling it. So if Ephesus, the city which, to which Paul writes to the Christians there, had cultural and religious pressures. A couple things here we know from history. It had a thriving port in the first century. It was proud and prosperous. And in Paul's day, Ephesus was already called the greatest city of Asia. It's in modern-day Turkey. The greatest city of Asia and it, also, it was also a very pagan city. Up to 50 gods and goddesses were worshipped in Ephesus. Up to 50. But the main attraction of Ephesus and the point of pride for their people was the temple of Artemis, which is the Greek goddess, Artemis, and the Roman goddess, which you can impress your friends with later. It's the same goddess as Diana. In Greek, it's Artemis. Artemis was a, the goddess of fertility, magic, and astrology. 
And they would say things like, she was, Artemis answers our prayers. She was seen as an extremely powerful deity with the ability actually to compel the passion of a woman toward a man. Right? So if you're like really struggling to like meet a girl, you pray to Artemis to kind of like wake up that girl you have your eye on to start liking you. Her perceived powers said, would be said that actually came directly from heaven. So that's a really big point of pride. But also in ancient Rome, it was common to worship Caesar as a god or as lord. So religion and politics were bedfellows in the imperial cults, which also was very powerful in Ephesus. So in Ephesus, you have not only the culture and everything that comes with being a port city, being proud and prosperous, you also have these religious pressures to conform to calling Caesar God or Caesar Lord and also to worship and pray to Artemis. And so the Ephesian Christians felt this pressure. So Paul, in Acts 19, and I'm going to go through a lot of scripture today, so just buckle in, hang on. In Acts 19, Paul comes to Ephesus, and it says that he preaches there every day for two years. And as a result of his preaching, the gospel advances, and people, what the people start doing is they stop worshiping idols, and they stop buying idols. So a man named Demetrius, who's a, who made silver shrines for the goddess Artemis, got upset. Right Now I can't make money because Paul's here preaching about Jesus and everybody's not buying idols from me anymore. So he stokes up the people. And check out this. It will be on the screen. Acts 19.27. And he says this, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours, right, this is hitting our wallets, guys, may come into uh, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and they may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Do you hear how he talks about Artemis? She, this magnificent goddess. Like, this is hitting our wallets. And guess what? Which people often like to do is like sprinkle a little like, you know, God in there? Well, yeah, we're losing money, but hey, what about God? That's what he does. Hey, what about Artemis? Don't forget her. And so the whole city gets really upset, and they start saying, like, great. They start, like, chanting for Artemis. Everybody gets really upset, and a riot ensues. And by God's grace, Paul is unharmed. So the Ephesian Christians are standing strong in a place like that. And so they're feeling cultural pressures much like we feel today. Young people, if you're here today, the, listen, the pressure you feel to conform to the world's way of things is not new. Every generation of Christians has faced pressure. And I hope in some strange way that's actually encouraging to you and comforting to you and the, that the pressures change and look different but Hebrews 13.3 tells us that, 13.8 tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. So cultural pressures are going to change. They're going to look different for each generation, but Jesus does not change. And we today, when we face certain cultural pressures and we clash with them, 
if you live in a more progressive culture like ours, like in the Philadelphia region, you're going to clash on biblical teachings like the institution of marriage. That marriage is reserved to be between a biological man and a biological woman. You're going to clash on things like life begins at conception. If you live in a more conservative area, you're going to clash on biblical teachings like compassion towards immigrants. You're going to clash on biblical teachings about like the need to care for God's creation. And I think you probably feel those. You probably feel those cultural pressures. But you might be like, well, what about religious ones? Where do we actually feel religious pressure? Well, Tim Keller, um, who's now passed away, he, he said this. He says, what is religion? Religion is a set of beliefs that explain what life is about, who we are, and how we should spend our time. What in our culture tells us what people say, this is what life's all about? who we are, and how we should spend our time. I think if we're honest, one of the major religions of our day, if not the major religion of our day, is politics. That's where people say, this is what life's all about. This is who we are. This is how we should spend our time. According to one study in 2020, evangelicals, we have the chart right here, white evangelicals, engaged in 0.88 acts out of six possible political acts. Okay, so there are six political acts you could be involved in in 2020. Evangelical, white evangelical Christians, 0.88. Non-white evangelicals, even less. But check this out. Atheists engage in the most out of all groups in 1.55 political acts. I think it's 100% absolutely true that there are places in the church where politics is, be that the church is becoming more and more political. I absolutely do believe that. It's, we're on the chart, okay? If you're here today, we're evangelical. A church, sorry to break the news to you, we engage. But we often get a bad rap and like, well, you know, those evangelicals, you know, we got to watch out for them. They're so political. Their churches are getting so political. But the stats say that atheists are the most political out of all of us. So Josh Howerton is a pastor. and He says politics is actually getting more theological. Politics is actually becoming more religious. Politics is actually the thing that's telling us how we should spend our time, how we, who we are, what we're all about. The religion of politics even starts to influence our relationships, like dating. So according to a recent survey, the number of people who are looking for a partner but believe it's not possible to date a person of the opposite political affiliation has risen from a third in 2012 to more than half in 2020. Another poll found that while more than half of men said they would date someone with different political views, just 35% of women said the same thing. And those numbers don't match up, okay? 50 and 35 doesn't match up. And only 40% of Democrats said they would date across party lines compared to 48% of Republicans and 49% of independents. Do you see how politics has gotten more religious? 
How you, do you see how it started to actually shape how we should live? The things that we should do? We shouldn't even date people who might be politically different than us. Why? Because one of the really parts of having successful relationship is shared values. And if the top value that we have is politics, when we bring two people together of two different political affiliations, that's going to cause conflict. It used to be if, you know, you would, you would marry people within your own religion. Now, you want to stay in your own political party. In the New Testament, Paul claimed that Jesus is Lord, which actually has at least two meanings. The first one is absolutely connection with Yahweh, or in Hebrew, Adonai, would be Adonai in the Old Testament. It means Lord, often translate Lord. But it also was a rejection of the common Roman saying, Caesar is Lord. See, every time you read Jesus Lord absolutely makes connection to Yahweh in the Old Testament. But more, but more also, what we probably have to think about when he says Jesus is Lord implies that Caesar is not. So New Testament will say things like this. We'll say, yes, show honor and respect to political powers, but also remind them that their power is limited. And Jesus does this to Pilate in John 19. Jesus answered Pilate, it says, and he said this, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. See what Jesus is saying? Your power is limited, Pilate. You're not the top person in the universe. The Father is. So we can see why Paul is thankful for the Ephesian Christians' faith. It must have been extremely challenging in a world like that to live under such pressure. But despite the pressure they felt, they didn't turn to worship Artemis. They didn't conform to the imperial cult and start worshiping Caesar as Lord. They didn't give in to the sinful things of their culture. Everything we experience today was in Paul's day and more, and they still said, no, we're not going to be a part of that. So we should take courage. We should stand strong in faith despite the pressures we feel because the power of Christ in us is greater than the cultural and religious pressures in our world. 1 John 4, 4 says, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we have power, Paul says. We've been given power. What kind of power does the Bible talk about that Christians have? Look at, I'm gonna, I think I have a slide here with like multiple passages of Scripture. Yeah, here we go. So what powers do Christians have? What power do Christians have? Well, Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation. John 1.12, power to become children of God. Power from the Holy Spirit, Acts 6.8. Power to live in God's service, Ephesians 3.16, we'll get to. Power to be his witnesses, you see that in Luke 24 and Acts 1. Power to endure suffering, 2 Timothy 1.8. Power that enables for ministry, Ephesians 3, 7. Power in the face of weakness, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Power through faith, James 5, 16. 
Power to be kept from evil, 1 Peter 1.5. Power to do great things, Acts 3.12. And power of Christ's unfailing presence on mission, Matthew 28.18-20. You have power. And your power, if you have faith in Jesus and you have, the, you, you have the Holy Spirit, your power is greater than any other power in the world. It doesn't matter the power of the culture. It doesn't matter the power of politics. Your power that you have in you is greater than what is in the world. But Paul says that power must be revealed to you. So look at verse, verses 17 and 18. Of Ephesians 1. What does he pray? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The power we have actually has to be revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Power is a major theme in Ephesians. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is the one who enlightens the eyes of our hearts to see the power we have in Christ. It's what classically has been called the doctrine of illumination. So maybe here, and we even did today, when I prayed that that the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer, that's asking the Holy Spirit to actually illuminate Scripture in our hearts. That's why we've been doing it after the scripture reading too, asking the Holy Spirit, asking God to illuminate scripture in our hearts. Illumination, J.I. Packer says, is applying, is the applying of God's revealed truth to our hearts so that we grasp as reality for ourselves what the sacred text sets forth. And you need this from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to do this for you. Because in 1 Corinthians 2:14, Paul says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. If I were to give you a plastic slide with a microcosm on it, and then I said, hey, could you please do a report on this? With your naked natural eye, would you be able to see anything on that slide? Absolutely not. So you would never be able to give me that report. But then if I said, okay, and here's also a microscope, you could not only see the microcosm, you could actually see all of its intricacies, and you could start providing a report on that. So to the natural eye, it's like it's not there, but with the eyes of a microscope, you can see it clearly. The Bible can tell you that you have power in Christ. I can tell you you have power in Christ, but only when the Holy Spirit reveals it to you, you, you actually you need this spiritual microscope to be able to see the power and do something about it. Unless you see it, you can't actually do anything with it. And so if you're a Christian, you can, what steps can you take to actually benefit from this ministry of the Holy Spirit? How do you actually like, benefit from illumination? This is start taking things like reading your Bible seriously and studying it. Be serious about your prayer life. And be serious about your response. Be obedient. Oh, I don't feel like God's talking to me. God's, God's like, I, I gave you a whole book. I don't feel like I have a relationship with God. God's like, well, just let's talk. Let's pray. 
I don't feel like I understand what Scripture is doing. I don't see the benefits of it. Well, why don't you just take small steps of obedience? Like the Ephesian Christians, we have to stand strong under pressure, but we have to see power, the power we have in Christ and come to grips with it to a point where it changes how we live under those pressures. But if we're living, the question might be, but if we're living in the power of the, of, that we have in Christ, won't we still clash with the cultural and political and religious pressures? Absolutely. Those things are going to cause conflict. Maybe, the, like Paul, they'll even start a riot. There's this uh, Anglican bishop, I can't remember who it was, but he said that everywhere St. Paul went, there was a riot. Everywhere I go, they serve tea or coffee. It's a good reminder that preaching the gospel will bring conflict. But that doesn't mean we go picking fights. 1 Thessalonians 4.11, Paul says, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So he's writing to the Christians in Thessalonica, right? In Acts 17, Paul preaches the gospel in Thessalonica. And what? Do you know what happens? A riot starts. So is the Bible saying, is Paul saying when he says, hey, aspire to live quietly, is he saying, look, you should never be politically active? Is he saying you should never join a protest? You should never speak out like things like racism or abortion or deny or defy unjust laws. Is he saying, you know what, don't do any of that. Just live quietly out on a farm somewhere with, you know, no electricity and well water or something like that, right? Is he saying that? Trevin Wax, in response to that passage, says, Paul's referring to a rootedness, a quietness that, that, listen, that does not seek the spotlight or succumb to fruitless anxiety, but works hard at resting in the sovereign goodness of God. I love that. Fruitless anxiety. How many of us struggle with fruitless anxiety? Me. I do. Rather than living the power of Christ that I have, I worry. I become anxious over the cultural and religious pressures that I can't control and that are completely in God's hands. But it's often this fruitless anxiety, though, that can make me angry, that makes me and maybe many other Christians negate the power that we have by picking fights. See, you can spoil the gospel with the wrong spirit and wrong methods. You know, Paul, this is for free, Paul talks, you know, when Paul calls out Peter in Galatians 2, isn't it amazing Paul publicly calls him out and Peter later in Scripture will refer to Paul as our brother Paul. Do you think that's how most people respond when Christians call them out? Is later they're calling us brother and sister? You can spoil the gospel with the wrong spirit and wrong methods, with a fruitless anxiety that picks fights for your glory, that does not rely on the sovereignty of God and does not care about his glory. Such attitudes and methods, listen to me, will negate the power you have in the gospel. You go pick fights. It's going to threaten your ability to advance the gospel. We think by doing so, we're not conforming to the world, but picking fights is exactly what the world does. Well, I need to fight for the world, and we need to, pit, we need to find people and put them in power who are going to fight for us. And that's what the other side says, too. We've got to find somebody who's going to be in power who's going to fight for us. 
I love what the early Christians do in Acts chapter 4. They anticipate that they're going to experience pressure and persecution. And what they do? They pray. Acts 4.29, they pray, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. Your and my first move when we anticipate or feel pressure is not to go pick a fight. It's to pray. God, what should I do next? We need to ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, could you please reveal the power that I have in Christ to me? Holy Spirit, would you help me advance the gospel in word and deed. Holy Spirit, would you help us plant more churches? Holy Spirit, would you help me share with my friends and neighbors about Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you help me invite this person to church on Sunday? See, if you come to grips with the power you have in Christ, when you anticipate that the cultural or religious clash and conflict that's going to happen, it won't drive you to fruitless anxiety. Instead, when you feel, look at the religious pressures of politics and you turn to prayer, he'll do what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. He says, thank God for kings. Thank them. Thank God for them. You'll thank God for the provision of leadership. God, it might be messed up, and I wouldn't have done it that way, but God, I thank you that you provided leadership for our country. And you would thank him also. God, thank you that that person's power is limited. When you're concerned with the cultural pressures that could unsettle your children, instead of turning to anger or anxiety, you'll intercede for your kids and ask God to keep their soul secure. And then ask God, God, is there, are there more steps you would like me to take? Would you like me to go to the school board meeting and actually make a presentation that won't get me on TikTok? That's different. See, the greatest power you have is access to the one who has graciously given you power in the first place. That's the greatest power you have. You have access to the Father who limits power, who created the universe and you, who has your kids' souls and hearts in his hand and your neighbors' hearts and their minds and your friends and your family too and yours. Not only that, not only does it need to be revealed to us, it must come from Jesus. The power we have must come from Jesus. The greatness of God's power toward us comes from Christ. God worked out his power in Christ in four ways. So let's jump back into the text here. Pick up in verse 20. So the first way he did this was the resurrection, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The second way he did that is in his exaltation, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And what that means is this seat him at the right hand is, is metaphorical for like privilege and honor. And I'm not sure if you go to heaven, you're going to see God sitting on a throne and Jesus at his right hand. Maybe that's the case, but it's more metaphorical 
than that. So resurrection, exaltation, conquest, right? Jesus actually has conquest over certain things. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And then fourth, domination. I love that. That's actually, I got that term from somebody else. Like, you ever thought about, like, Jesus dominated his enemies? Like, that's pretty cool. Look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things through the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Real quick. In his resurrection ascension, God has given Jesus power over everything. In this present life, it says, and the life to come in the new heavens and new earth. He says Jesus is the head of the church, and the head of the church is also the head of the universe. Isn't that amazing? That the person who's head of the church is also head of the universe. Jesus is the one who fills the universe, and he's also the one who fills the church, it says. So the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the same power that exalted him, that gave him conquest and domination over all things, is at work in you and in the church, God's people. The power of his resurrection, ascension, conquest, and dominion lives in you. We, as together, then, are Christ's body. We are filled with his power. He enjoys filling us with his power. So we need to live as people who are actually connected to him. If we connect ourselves to things that aren't compatible, like an iPhone cord to an Android, if we connect our things to things that aren't compatible with who we are as the church, We'll never come to grips with the power we have from God and Christ. If you come to grips with the power that you have in you by the Holy Spirit and being revealed to you by the Holy Spirit coming from Christ, what's going to happen in your life is you'll start to put sin to death and you'll become a greater person of prayer. If you start coming to grips with the power that you have, you'll put aside fruitless anxiety and you'll stop picking fights and instead you'll rest in the sovereignty of God. And so not only will those unseen things, those things that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart will become part of who you are, but together then we'll be able to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus. Together we'll be able to follow Christ into battle for the hearts and minds of those in our region and advance the gospel with boldness. John Stott says something like this. He says, in the power, if the power of God has put all things under Christ's feet, it can certainly put all evil under ours. You hear that? If God did this for Jesus and he put all things, all things under Jesus' feet, he can certainly put evil under yours. But it's only possible if we have the Holy Spirit through faith. So if you're a follower of Jesus, start living like it. Would you start living like you have power? Start living like you can actually defeat evil and sin in your life. That God has actually given you the power to do that. 
Well, I'm never going to be able to beat this. Oh, this is what it's always going to be like. This is, you know, I'm always going to struggle with this sin. The Bible never says that. It never says, oh, your whole life you're going to struggle with this one sin. The Bible does say you have power that God has given you to fight sin and defeat it. You struggle with anger. You struggle with lust. You struggle with gossiping. You don't have to keep doing it. Trust God to work these things out in your life. Trust the power that he's given you. Continue to fall at his feet. Continue to go to the cross and ask for forgiveness when you mess up. And when you mess up, go back to worshiping him. Go back to praising and praying, just like Ephesians 1. But listen to me. If you're not a Christian, though, you need to receive Jesus today. Because all this power that we're talking about, that God promises, is only for those who have faith in Christ. So when you feel the cultural and religious pressures, look, your, your political party's not going to be able to stand up to it. For all the fighting of all the years, if you ask me, I don't think we've gotten any better. It's maybe gotten worse. Instead, the only person who can stand up against that and give you the power to stand against those pressures is Jesus. And look, I'm not sure how far this is going to go. I'm not sure how far cultural and religious pressures are going to go and the ones we might face in the future. But Paul, his prayer for the Ephesians actually gives us hope. You're not powerless. You're not powerless in advancing the gospel. Instead, we're filled with power. So let's do this. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it to us. Could you do that this week? Could you ask the Holy Spirit in times of prayer? Hey, Holy Spirit, would you reveal more of the power that I have in Christ to me? And let's start living in that power. Let's start living in the power that comes from Christ and advance the gospel in our region and our lives with boldness. So let me pray for you now. Let's, let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to us. And we'll continue our service with confession and assurance and communion.